In today's episode, we hear from a CRNA who struggled through years of infertility, thought she was experiencing a miscarriage early in her pregnancy before her daughter was given a life-limiting diagnosis. Find out how these events impacted her career, marriage, and life. Welcome to the Pause to Remember podcast. My name is Amy Pelkey. I'm a practicing CRNA yoga teacher and mother to one son here on earth and one daughter who was stillborn. If you are a healthcare provider who has experienced pregnancy or infant loss, this podcast is for you. My goal is to offer resources, conversations, and mindfulness-based grief tools to help providers like you build the courage to acknowledge and process your emotions, the strength to carry your grief, and resilience so you can preserve your career, relationships, and overall well-being while honoring the memory of your baby. I want to assure you that you are not alone in your grief. I am thankful that you are here today. Let's begin. Welcome everybody. Today, my guest is Chelsea Herzig. She is a CRNA in Minnesota in a small group of four CRNAs. And she is here to talk to us about her journey through loss and tell us a little bit about her daughter, Bryn. Welcome, Chelsea. Thank you very much. I appreciate it, Amy. Yes, of course. Um, let's just jump in to what life was like before your pregnancy. Um, so prior to my pregnancy, I've kind of changed my life a lot since before my pregnancy. So I was living in North Carolina at the time with my, um, husband and we had been struggling to conceive for several years. Um, we had started trying to conceive, um, right as I had about six months left of my anesthesia program and my, um, husband at the time was in medical school And so we kind of had entered that and a year went by, we started seeking, we moved from Tennessee to North Carolina, we started seeking help. Um, And that was kind of my whole life was, all my goals were centered around becoming a mom. And um, so that was just 100% where my thought processes were. Um, So I got hooked up with an OB and we started doing all the fertility testing And, um, at the same time I was starting a new job in North Carolina, um, and my husband at the time, so he is now, um, my ex, but my husband at the time was starting his residency. So we had a lot going on. I had a new job. He was in, um, brand new resident, surgical resident, and I wanted to be a mom so badly. Life was good though. We have, we had two big dogs, um, new house, you know, it was just, dreaming of having my little bringing a baby home to it. And so I had this big house and it was feeling empty and it was like, what's the next steps? Um, so I ended up getting pregnant, um, with my first pregnancy, um, ended up being my baby girl, Bryn. Um, I found out I was pregnant with her February 14th. So Valentine's day of last year. So of 2022. Um, and I was just like, actually what had happened was, I got a call from the OB saying that they didn't see, I still wasn't responding to Clomid. What's what I was on and that, um, you know, we'd have to try something different next month. And two days later, he called me again and said, never mind. Somehow I had the wrong ultrasound from a month ago. 
and the new dose of Clomid worked. And I was like, well, dang it. We didn't really try this month. Like what a waste. <laughs> and that February 14th morning, I was like, you know, I should have got my period by now. And I took a, I called my husband and he was coming off like an overnight call shift and he picked up a pregnancy test from me at the grocery store and I was pregnant and I was elated. So that was um, kind of the journey to that point was a lot of stress and infertility struggles. Yeah. And it's a lot, especially when you're going through school and your husband's in medical school, like that is a lot going on and it definitely impacts how everything plays out in your body and in your Mm -hmm. mind for sure. So as you learned you were pregnant on Valentine's day, what was the first trimester like for you? Um, It was very, very stressful. So week or week five, I already was having heavy bleeding. Um, and I, of course, when does heavy bleeding start? It starts on a Friday afternoon while you're at work, working a 12 hour shift and your OB office is closed. (laughs) Um, and so I, you know, I, I knew I had a miscarriage. I a hundred percent was like, I'm having a miscarriage. Um, I told my coworkers, they kind of covered down. I stayed the rest of my shift and I went home that weekend and I just cried and cried and cried. And of course my husband wasn't home. He was gone on, um, like several hours away at clinical site and, um, doing some rotation, I think trauma rotation. And, um, so I just, you know, he is super supportive. My mom was super supportive, um, but they kept telling me like, don't you think you'd be having cramping? Blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I don't know. I've never been pregnant before, let alone know what this is like. But I'm like, I'm bleeding way heavier than any period I've ever had. Um, so Monday morning I called in for work and I called my OB and they're like, no, you need to come in right now. We're going to check you out. And I went in and they found a heartbeat and I was just, that was like a beautiful moment. I thought for sure I had lost the baby. <laughs> But obviously that was very stressful. And, you know, I told my OB told me, you know, it was a very large um, placental detachment. I'm trying to think of what's, do you know what the name is right now, Amy? I can't think of it. In terms of like an abruption? Like, well, yeah, but uh, they call it something different that early, but there was a large area of the placenta that had detached. And they said, you know, based on that, I was uh, like triple the chance to miscarry the baby. Um, so then I entered this constant scary phase for the next, I think until 11 weeks I bled and it was like a week would go by and I would be feeling so good. I would stop wearing my pads and my underwear and then gushing blood at work. And then my pants would be soaked and I would be running out of the operating room or I'd be calling like someone needs to come and get me. Like it looks like a horror movie in here. It was awful. And so every time that happened, I was running back to the OB's office thinking I was losing um, the baby again. And then finally I hit like 11 weeks and I was sick as a dog this whole time and just super nauseous constantly. And I was doing most of this without my husband there as well. Then, you know, I hit my second trimester and everything just smoothed out. You know, uh, my OB said, you know, we're completely in the clear at this point. Bren looked to be growing. By that time I had done the maternity testing and 
um, found out that everything they test for on there, she was genetically normal and that she was a little girl. Um, we found that on Easter, everything I like associated with Brim was like a holiday. We found out we were pregnant on Valentine's day. We found out she was a girl on Easter. Um, and her due date was supposed to be right around Halloween. And I had way more ultrasounds than any of my coworkers who were also pregnant were having. So they all just thought it was kind of like, I have an ultrasound almost every week, basically, because of my bleeding. And But everything always looked good. And um, it was, I was coming up on about 18, 19 weeks. And my sister was getting married in Hawaii. So um, I, we were going to do the anatomy scan as soon as I got back. We got back from Hawaii. We had a fantastic time. I was like really showing, you know, I was like, this is just awesome. <laughs> I got back and that following week I had um, my anatomy scan. They didn't tell me anything really at the time. It was primarily the ultrasound tech. She just barely didn't say much. And I went to go see not my normal OB, a different OB in that office because my normal OB was out that week. And he's like, you know, I'm not really sure why, but the ultrasound tech put on here to refer you to MFM, maternal fetal medicine. And I was like, instantly, like my heart just sunk. Like, what do you mean? And what do you mean? You don't know why, you know, he said, you know, it looks like there could potentially be a two vessel cord. Then the other thing he had told me once I dug and my husband dug, he wasn't going to tell us what, why we were going there. And I'm like, I know you don't just send people there for no reason, like what's going on. Um, and he said that they hadn't seen Bryn's bladder empty during the scan or yeah, they never saw Bryn's bladder fill. So they were hoping that she had um, just peed right before the anatomy scan. And, you know, we just hadn't given it enough time to fill um, and for them to see that on the ultrasound. And so I was referred as like non-urgent to MFM. And so I called every single day trying to get on the cancellation list or something because I'm in a complete panic. And the receptionist there kept telling me, this is not urgent. This is nothing, you know, you're just on a, you, we can't get you in quicker. And I'm like, this is ruining my entire life. Like, I have no idea what's going on. I'm a stressed out wreck. This isn't good for me. This isn't good for the baby. Finally, I got on a cancellation list. A week later, I got in. Of course, nervous wreck. Um, my husband was able to come with me, thankfully. I was able to get off of his rotations or residency stuff, which was, that was always a hard part is a lot of times I was doing this by myself. We were sitting in the MFM room and the ultrasound tech is the one doing it. And she's like, you know, there's not a lot of amniotic fluid here. Or have you been leaking? And I'm like, no, I haven't been leaking amniotic fluid. And so then I'm just in a panic and I'm watching her measuring and everything is, I was a little over 20 weeks at the time and Brim was measuring. Some areas were measuring 20, but some areas were measuring like 18 or 17. And I was just like, I was like freaking awful worst moment of my life, you know, sitting there and my husband sitting next to me, like everything's fine. I think he was I mean, he's a very smart guy, but I think I was very much aware that something was very wrong and he didn't want to think anything was wrong. She leaves the room and then the long wait of waiting for the MFM doctor to come in. I know something's wrong. And so Alec is there trying to tell me nothing's wrong. Everything's fine. I promise everything's fine. Blah, blah, blah. And the MFM doc comes in and she's starts looking around as well. And she's like, we do not see any kidneys. And I'm just instantly like, 
just, I probably said like F this, you know, like why the F is this happening to me and to her? And, you know, she was wonderful. And she's like, you know, swear, swear, scream, do whatever you need to do right now. Um, I think, you know, with both of us having medical background, she didn't do a lot of explanation, which was fine. I mean, I know what not having kidneys means, but I think it would have been a different appointment had, um, you know, we not been a CRNA and a physician. She said, okay, so what do you want to do now? And that was like, my instant reaction was, I want to have a DNA or D. And I'm like, I don't want to be awake. I don't like, I can't do this. Like, my instant reaction was, I just want to run. And like, which is fine. A lot of people that would be their choice. And, but a couple days went by. And actually, I think I spoke with Amy at the time. I, my first thing, I got home and I mean, I don't even, I don't even know what happened that night. I think me and Alec just sat there and cried all night. I, I think I've kind of blocked out what that night looked like. Um, I do remember me and Alec had drove separately to the appointment and we both had to drive home. Um, and he just stayed on the, Alec stayed on the phone with me the whole time and was like, are you sure you're okay to drive? Are you sure you're okay to drive? Um, and I think I was so stunned. I was okay to drive at that. You know, I was just like, how can this possibly be happening? You know, the next few days we had spoken with the um, MFM doctor because she had said, she's like, I'm honestly very surprised at the amount of amniotic fluid that is present, um, that you are over 20 weeks and there is any amniotic fluid at all. Cause she's like, when we have complete renal, a bilateral renal agenesis, um, we would have expected that we would have first of all noticed this sooner because you would have been had such low amniotic fluid that they would have seen it on prior scans. And she's like, I would think there should be no amniotic fluid at this point. Um, because at this point the baby should be swallowing the amniotic fluid and peeing it out to make their own. Um, but we were not seeing kidneys or bladder, um, on the scans. She recommended that we do a fetal MRI, which I'm so grateful I did. And so, which wasn't available at my smaller, I mean, I worked at a large-ish hospital, but I needed to go to a true medical center to have that done. My mom, I of course called my mom immediately. She's my best friend and support person. And she flew down the following day. This all happened on Wednesday, I think was my initial ultrasound and the fetal MRI was scheduled for Friday. So my mom came with me to that and my husband wasn't able to be there because of work. You know, in the meantime, while we were waiting between the initial MFM doctor appointment and the fetal MRI, me and my mom talked a lot about is having a DNA what I want um, or do I want to have Bryn? And the more I thought about it, the more I knew I needed to have her, even though it was going to be the scariest and hardest thing I've ever done in my life. But I mean, anyone who's that far along knows how real they are and how much you're looking forward to them and how you have dreams and hopes and desires for that dear child. For me, it was right to, I decided I was going to have her regardless, you know, pray and hope that this fetal MRI said something different, but that I would be having her um, have a vaginal delivery with her, which I was so scared about. And Amy was honestly my biggest support person. <laughs> through that, just knowing what to expect. So I had my fetal MRI on Friday. And at this point, I was starting to feel brain kicking and stuff every once in a while. I mean, not a ton, a ton of movement, but I was 
having like the little you know random kicks here and there and the fetal MRI, they warned me. They said a lot of times the MRI, the noise and the vibrations gets the baby moving. And she just did backflips the entire time. And so that was extra hard if I'm sitting there. I'd only felt her move, you know, a few times prior to that. And here I am getting the, like, ultimate worst diagnosis. I can just feel her, like, so vibrant. I mean, it's literally like she was doing somersaults for the whole hour long MRI and they kept coming in and telling me like um she's moving so much we have to redo it we have to redo it I'm like gosh I trust me I know she's moving so much like what an awful reminder and then because it was Friday afternoon I had to wait all weekend to have the radiologist who actually specializes in reading female fetal MRIs call me. And in the meantime, I had the best MFM doctor. She had given me her personal contact info and would text me every day and, or multiple times a day saying, I've checked and it hasn't been read. I've checked and it hasn't been read. But like, she was constantly communicating with me. And finally, Monday, I finally decided like, not that I hadn't been showering, but I was like, okay, I haven't heard anything. It's time. I'm going to get in the shower. I'm like, I know I'm going to get in the shower and I'm going to get the call. Of course I get in the call shower and the MFM doctor is calling me and um, I pick it up (laughs) freezing cold and wet. They, there was no kidneys. um, They verified on the MRI scan. And um, so I'm sitting there bawling my eyes out, (laughs) tripping wet. My mom comes in and we just, she just holds me. So then we had to start setting up the plans for having Bryn. Um, I decided not to have her at my local, my hospital I worked at, just because I wanted to have her at the larger medical center where I thought they would have more resources available. And in the meantime, I was talking to Amy a lot about what to expect because I had never seen a baby who was 21 weeks. I didn't know what she was going to look like. I didn't know if she'd be born alive. I didn't know what an induction looked like at that age. Um, and I was scared. I was, the, my biggest fear was that I'd be scared to hold her or scared of her, which wasn't the case at all, but that was what I was so terrified about. And so I found that, you know, my MFM doctor worked with the larger medical center near us and, um, they had, and one reason again, why I'm glad I did it there was they had case management involved and all sorts of people that I just wouldn't have had otherwise. So the case manager helped me coordinate, um, getting in contact with everyone. I had, you know, actual MFM physicians who were contacting me, which it would have been, which it would have been OBs at my other place. It was just a different experience, which for me was right. And I I didn't, also, I kind of didn't want to be around my coworkers during this. I'm not going to lie. Like it was, it would just been too much. That Friday I went in, well, they called me and they first had to, I had to verbally say over the phone that I did want to have an induction for termination of pregnancy. And then there was a, I can't even remember. I have such a terrible memory. It was either 48 or 72 hour wait from the time I verbally said that until I could actually start my induction. Um, So more days, more days of sitting here and letting Bryn go bigger and letting her, I don't know, just like torture. But at the same time, it was quality time I got to spend with her. So it's just, I don't know. It's like a good and bad thing. Um, but at that time, I took a lot of pictures of my belly. <laughs> and um, 
talked a lot with my mom and cried a lot and you know it was like pre-grieving but <laughs> there's never enough pre-grieving you can do for something like this but it was quality time I got to spend with her and allowed my mom to feel her kicks and Alec to feel her kicks and I hadn't seen my mom in a while she was living in Minnesota at the time when I was in North Carolina so <laughs> do you want me to talk about my experience of having her Amy or yeah, I mean, I think that it's helpful for other people <laughs> to hear it because you had expressed to me, I didn't know what to anticipate. It was so, that was the scariest thing. I'm like, there's not really any, there's no, I couldn't find any information online to explain this. Yeah, no, I couldn't either when I went through yeah. it. And I was just very lucky to have a midwife who spelled it yeah. all out for me. Yes. But I think sometimes when we are healthcare providers, people don't want to insult our intelligence or, you know, yeah. I don't know if they're like, do they want us, you know, to tell them everything or they just assume we know because we're medical professionals, but OB is completely different. It's a different anything that I do, you know? Yeah. And I don't even like, and that's, you know, I didn't really do a ton of OB in school. I did enough OB to get my epidurals in and that my current practice, I wasn't really doing OB at all. We did C-sections. That was it. Healthy C-sections. So, I mean, I was just like, I had no idea what to expect. So you, Amy, was my biggest person to just tell me what, what things would look like, what an induction looked like. Did you get an epidural? Could I get an epidural? Could I not? I like didn't know. I had absolutely no idea. So that was super helpful. And then um, also in the meantime, it was nice. And then I got to do some planning. You had recommended some things to like ask um, for, you know, like a, the cooling. Um, I can't. What, what's that called? Well, there's like a little cooling blanket that they can put yep. the baby on so that yes. they don't decompose rapidly. And that yes. just buys you more time. Exactly. So just. I mean, just knowing these things you can ask for, um, having a photographer come in, um, I'll tell you my story with that. I really wanted a photographer to be present and they didn't make it, but um, the hospital was able to take beautiful pictures, but it allowed me some time like talking with Amy and just knowing like, what can I do to make this as beautiful of an experience as possible? Also to best prepare myself and my family, because once again, so yeah, okay. My husband's a surgeon. That doesn't mean he knows anything about what this looks like. Like we were both completely clueless. So, um, and I probably could have asked more questions, but maybe I, I don't even, didn't even know what to ask. Um, and I wasn't spending a lot of time talking with anyone. This was all over the phone planning to just come in at this time. You know, I got into the hospital, um, early that day after fighting about trying to get enough people, I really wanted my mother-in-law, my mom and my husband there. And, um, they were, you know, a little back and forth, but they did let three people in. Typically it was only two. I got there at like 11 o'clock without realizing that I couldn't start my induction until five. So that was a long time. Um, but in the meantime, I had an just absolute excellent nursing staff, who um, I had never done one of those ones where you can get the baby's heartbeat and like put in a stuffed animal. And they did that for me there. So um, that's like my most meaningful possession um, is that <laughs> I call it Bryn bear. It's a bear. <laughs> it has her heartbeat in it. And uh, so we got to do that at the hospital while we were waiting. We also, I was really hoping that um, I wanted to do, of course, genetic testing as well. Um, Cause 
everything I could find online is it's just this bio, bilateral renal agenesis is can be genetic, but most of the time it's just a fluke. And um, but I wanted to rule out genetic stuff, so I wanted to do an amniocentesis. So in the, while the MFM doctors came in while we were waiting to start induction to see if we could do an amnio, and there just wasn't any amniotic fluid left, so we there there wasn't like a small little area and I was like I'm not going to torture myself and torture her and take her small little bit of her amniotic fluid left for this I'm like so we ended up doing all my genetic testing was off of um her the placenta but it did you know I was there early but it wasn't the worst thing ever and I got to eat and drink I I surprisingly still had a ferocious appetite during all this and so how my induction worked was right at five o'clock when I had given my, so the 48 or 72 hours from the time I had given my verbal consent over the phone, they were able to start my induction and um, they just did the tabs on my cervix. It's the medicine that they would have put on me. Oh my God. It wasn't pit. No, it was, it was um, miso. Misoprostol. Yes. Yeah, that's what it was. Um, so that is what they used. Um, I didn't know if they would be starting a pit trip. I, just, I had no idea. And so they used the misoprostol on me. Um, and it was every, I think, four hours they would come and do another tab. The first time they came in, they did the misoprostol. And I said, I'd like to have an epidural before I get uncomfortable. Anesthesia came in right away. I was just shaking that my response to stress and anxiety is trembling, like uncontrollable trembling. So here I am. I know I'm not scared of the epidural, but I am shaking and like can't hold still. And I'm like, I'm so sorry. I'm like, I'm not scared about the epidural. I'm scared about this whole thing. You know, I'm just scared of the process. So I got my epidural. Well, that was I'm very glad I did it, but I got, I had a one-sided epidural for my entire labor until it became essentially a spinal because <laughs> they were trying to dose it up so high, but I'm very glad I did an epidural because when I started feeling the contractions, I was in a lot of pain. Um, I, a lot of people do it. A lot of people do a full-term labor without an epidural. I was very glad I did the epidural. So every four hours they would come and um, check on, check my dilation, do the mesoprostol. Another reason why I was really happy with where I went, I had one nurse to myself because I was considered an active labor. Um, where my, my hospital, it's like you have a nurse with two or three patients if they're in active labor. Um, so every time I press that call button, I had someone in there. Um, one thing I hadn't expected, Amy had given me a little bit of a heads up, but your situation was a little different. You were kind of febrile, if I remember correctly. Um, I was not febrile. I did not have any infection, but I shook uncontrollably from the misoprostol. True, uncontrollable. I couldn't grab my water glass. I couldn't hold it still. Um, and I had that too. Yeah, it yeah. was awful. They ended up giving me fentanyl because they, okay. yeah, because I was just like, I I can tolerate a lot and I have a very high pain tolerance. Yeah. Um, but I was just like, I, I it was the middle of the night. I couldn't stop mm-hmm. shaking. I had this high fever. It was like yeah. one thing. I was like, I just need something. And something, they were like, anything. do you want to try a little fentanyl? I was like, yeah, did sure. Did let's it try help? It. And it did help. Yes. Okay. But it didn't completely take it away. It just took so- me off recommendation they give me presidex and completely cut the shaking and now for my future practice now i know um to use that for myself and i mean for anyone who has to go through this experience um ask about it because 
it was, it didn't, um, you know, I wasn't drowsy from it. I just, it just completely negated the shaking. And I kept telling everyone, I'm okay, I'm okay. And um, I think honestly, from for me, I couldn't have sat like that all night long. Eventually, we would have had to do something. But it was very scary for my um, husband and the two moms. They were by far more distressed watching me shake like that than I was with the situation. Because I, they actually, and then even the um, anesthesiologist, the, awful, I can't say anesthesiologist. <laughs> The doc and the resident came in and they all were thinking I had last because I was shaking so bad. And I said, this is not last. This is, this is just my body's reaction to this induction. So I was significantly more comfortable after the Presidex and that lasted me for the rest of the labor. And I never dilated to 10. They said, they just told me, you know, you're dilated enough for the size of Bryn. Um, You know, they're like, you'll know when you're ready to push. Well, I had the densest epidural ever. I mean, like, it was essentially a spinal, like, because they kept dosing it, dosing it, pulling it back, dosing it again, couldn't move my right leg. And my left leg was finally, finally, I got relief. But now I was like spinal level, you know, I turn over, I'm a probably terrible patient. And I turn off my epidural pump myself. And so then I sat there for several hours. And, you know, after they said that you'll know when you're going to be ready to push. And I felt absolutely nothing because I had such a dense block. So I was a little frustrating because I'm like, well, and then I'm like, can I just start pushing, you know? And so I called the nurse in. I'm like, I was also, why do you feel guilty? I'm like, I should not feel guilty in this situation, but the moms and my husband are sitting there. It's 3am. We've all been up all day long. Everyone's like, looks awful. We're all just exhausted. We're all, I mean, I hear I'm terrified. I'm sure they're obviously terrified as well. And so I'm like, can I just start pushing? And they're like, well, if you don't really feel they did one thing, I also, this did not happen for me at all, but they did warn me that she could potentially just come out if I was that blocked um that I could potentially just have her without realizing it. So I course I'm constantly picking up my sheet like terrified I'm having a baby I'm having my little girl and I'm not even aware of it the one other thing I will tell you is the induction drugs gave me horrible diarrhea so I was pooped all over myself multiple times I wasn't expecting that very strange having someone have to clean you up because you're such a horrible block so that was another thing um, that was, you know, so you're sitting there in your own poop and you're worrying you're having your baby right now. And um, I started to, that my epidural started to wear off enough that I could like at least feel contractions. I called the nurse and part of it was I was too scared to push. Like I could have very well been feeling these contractions and I was too scared. I didn't know what to expect. I was so terrified of her coming and being born and not being comfortable or being alive and suffering because her lungs were completely underdeveloped. And I mean, obviously she's too young to survive. And I was just so scared of her being born and having any moment where she was suffering. I talked with the OB for quite a while about what to expect about that. And they did tell me that typically at this age, they are not born alive, um, that they typically pass away during the labor process. But they, you know, of course, there's no way of knowing for sure. 
Um, and so I wanted to have her said fentanyl available in case she came out and was struggling to breathe. Um, I wanted her to be able to pass as peacefully as possible, basically comfort care, like neonate comfort care. This is something I wasn't expecting at all, but they could not, pharmacy would not allow them to have it available until they knew Bryn's weight. So that was another very distressing fact for me because that was another reason why I didn't want to push. I didn't want her to come out in this world and not have anything available. Um, And of course, my husband, who had done some of his residency stuff there, was furious (laughs) and was calling pharmacy. (laughs) They wouldn't budge. To me, I'm like, it makes no sense. It's a lethal dose. Um, And we can guesstimate what a 21-week gestational baby is. Why in the world do we need to know what her weight is before we can have it delivered. But they, what they did to keep me as calm as possible was they had a person designated to be a runner to get fentanyl if needed. And they said it was physically available on the floor. It's just, they couldn't draw it up and their pharmacy wouldn't allow them to draw it up, but it was there. That was uh, very stressful for me. Finally, I decided that I was ready to push. I'm, I was just like, I could sit here all night. I'm never going to, I'm never going to be ready for this moment ever. (laughs) Like (laughs) there's no way in the world I'm ever going to be ready to have my baby girl at 21 weeks. So it took me quite a long time actually to have her, they had to help coach me just how to push. Cause I was so still so blocked. Um, so that, you know, they, you know, kind of helped push where I needed to direct my pushing, you know, they gave me pressure on my vagina in order to tell me where to push because I was doing completely useless pushes because I was so densely blocked. It took probably about 20 minutes for me to have a brin of very, I mean, for me, it was intense labor. She came out, she was so beautiful. She was completely in her placental sac and um, completely in her amniotic sac with her placenta. They call it like, they said, you know, they like, the one nurse she'd been working there 20 years and she said she's only seen one other mermaid birth and that's what's called so they had to open her little amniotic sack there she was she was absolutely perfect and it wasn't scary at all um which was my huge fear and um she had passed um that was like my first question is she alive um and she had passed during um while i was laboring with her and she was absolutely beautiful and her eyes are, were closed, and she had perfect little fingers and toes, and, you know, with her nails, and um, I got a hold of her immediately. It was beautiful, honestly. It was absolutely beautiful, and um, during that time, my husband had just, like, picked Somewhere Over the Rainbow. That's, like, I don't know, my mo- the song my mom requested, and he had just picked that one song, but for some reason, it like continued to go through all these other beautiful songs while I was laboring that were just perfect. I was like, you know, to me, it was just like, this is like God telling me that this is going to be okay. Uh, It was just every song that played was just beautiful. And if she had been born during any one of those, it would have been perfect. Um, She ended up being born to, I think it's called Danny's song or Danny's boy or something, which when I listen to it, it's about a little boy, but it's honestly, it's like perfect. It's about loving her child. It was, it wasn't scary, you know, and, uh, she was perfect and beautiful and we got to spend time with her. My husband got a holder. The mom's got a holder. My photographer who I had hired never did make it in because it was 3 a.m. And she probably had accidentally put her phone on silent, but, um, the hospital, my nurse who was beyond wonderful, 
took some beautiful photos for us and my, the pit mom and my husband took beautiful photos as well. And we had a chaplain service um, come up and do a little service for her. Um, we are not high, very religious people, but I'm very spiritual. And um, so I wanted, of course, have a, a service for her. We also took the opportunity to do something that um, the photographer who was supposed to come had recommended, like a sailing bath. Um, and that way she was able, because part of their skin is so fragile at that stage. Um, and that's part of the decomposition that we were talking about, like having this cooling bed or cooling blanket. We did not use the cooling bed or cooling blanket. We did the sailing bath. And it was really nice in that we put her in this little bath of sailing and I could touch her more easily without worrying about her skin being too fragile to handle it. Um, and also helped just make her look more plumped up, I guess. And so we got some really nice photos that way too. Yeah. So that was the birth. Um, we didn't stay with her as long as I thought I would want to, but for me, it was when I saw her like that, I knew that her, for me, her soul had already left. Um, I spent time to look at her and admire how beautiful she was, but I didn't hold her for hours. Um, I probably was with her for maybe half an hour. And I, I was ready at that time um, to let them take her. And um, and I think for everyone's that's going to be incredibly different how long you want to spend with them. Um, but that was right for me. And uh, I think that was right for my family too. We um, because after some time they do start to look different too, and that's hard, really hard to see. We opted to do um to have her cremated. I had a special urn made for her with the design from the first onesie I brought her. Um, I bought her this onesie when I was like 12 weeks along and I knew she was a little girl. And um I looked at that onesie all the time because I could not wait to have her in it. Unicorns and rainbows and everything that I thought a little girl should have. I found a lady on Etsy who would make urns um, for children and um, for babies specifically. I had uh, her, I sent her the design and she did an absolutely beautiful job um, make, taking my design and making it like perfect for Bryn's urn. Yeah. And then, and then the real grief starts when you go home and don't have your baby. Yeah. It's incredibly overwhelming at times, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did you find that first morning when you went home after being in the hospital, you know, all day, all mm -hmm. night kind of thing, you were kind of numb or it was very overwhelming at that point, or did it kind of sink in over time? That first day we got home, I was kind of numb and I was, my husband wanted to go back to work. That was his way of dealing with it is he literally wanted to go back to work that day afterwards. And I told him, absolutely not. I'm like, I need you here. And I, I'm like, I understand that for you, this is your way of dealing with it is, is going back to work and occupying your mind. But I'm like, I need you for at least a couple, like at least two days. <laughs> when we went home, I was honestly, I was like super concerned, even though I hear I'm a CRNA, I was still so numb. I couldn't walk even 12 hours later. And so they had to like assist me into the car. I think that the epidural was sitting like right on my like sciatic or for something on my whole right leg. And so I was like very concerned because it took almost 24 hours to actually have full sensation back in my leg. And so I was very concerned that something had actually happened, like that I had a nerve injury. Um, so that was kind of distract. I mean, and this is a total me allowing it to distract me too, because I needed something to distract me in that moment. So I was very concentrated on, I have a nerve injury. <laughs> 
I mean, of course I'm grieving for my daughter, but I was numb. I was exhausted. We got home and I think we just actually, after we had Bryn, I, and we spent time with her, we all just crashed and went to sleep for several hours. And they offered me that I could either go home that day or I could spend the night, whatever was right for me and whatever I needed. Um, and I wanted to go home, which I'm sure is probably what most people want to do. Just You just want to be out of that hospital. Yeah, that first day, I honestly don't even... That, the whole thing is kind of a blur to me, probably because that's my way of coping with it. Um, I do remember going home. I remember how numb my legs were, but it was that week or two afterwards that were, it was the waiting game, knowing for sure her diagnosis, that was the worst, that couple days of waiting for between having my MFM appointment, waiting for the MRI, then waiting for the results of the MRI, then waiting for my actual induction day. Then it was that probably that two weeks after having her that were awful. Um, it was just a lot, a lot of crying, a lot of spending time with the blanket that she held her in a lot of time, just like spending time listening to her heartbeat on my little Bryn bear. It was awful. But, um, I had my mom there with me the entire time and I had, um, my mother-in-law stayed for several days after as well. My husband was back at work, (laughs) but, um, I mean, it's, he was very supportive in this all. It makes it sound awful, but he he needed that for himself too. I remember you talking to me about him going back to work and whatnot. Yeah. And it was just, it was the right thing for him. And you, yeah. and he knew that you had support at home yeah. with your mom yeah. and your mother-in-law there for a few yeah. days. So yeah. It, and it was it okay. Definitely. I mean, it wasn't, it sounds awful, but it, it was, it was what we needed. The other thing too, is I think people listening to this are all healthcare providers. So they get what it's like for residency. I mean, either we've worked with residents or seen that, you know, seen some aspect of their training or, you know, or gone through it. If you're a physician, you know, there's not a whole lot of wiggle room in their schedule to be off. Exactly. There is not. What he did was he um, was at a large trauma center at the time and he requested that he could not do peds trauma because they had a lot of peds trauma there. And he said he could not. That was his request. No peds trauma. In the meantime, with all of this, I was getting so much support from, honestly, my coworkers were my biggest support system. Not that family wasn't, my immediate family was very supportive, um, but my extended family was quieter, probably because they didn't know what to say. And um, my coworkers came out in like groves. The day that I found out what had my Bryn's diagnosis, like the day I had the MFM appointment, I had my husband call my boss and the chief CRNA at my um, site and tell him what was going on. And um, because I couldn't do it. I told him that I think it was, I don't think I told him that day, but within a couple days, I told him like, please feel free to tell, um, my coworkers what's happening. In the meantime, I had been, I had some close friends there as well who knew what was going on. And I said, please feel free to let people know. Everyone knew I was pregnant. Everyone knew I was pregnant practically from the moment I was pregnant because I was so excited. I couldn't even like keep it a secret. The practical side of it too is, is you don't want to be yeah. in the total joint rooms and with a lot of fluoro. Yeah, yeah exactly. You know, that sort of thing. So you kind of yeah. have, if you're in anesthesia, you kind of have to tell from day exactly. one just to protect yeah. the people. 
Yeah. Yep, exactly. And I think that was part of it. It was like, I had to tell one person because I need to get out of the case. And then pretty soon everyone knows anyways. And I was so, I didn't care. I was so happy. <laughs> like, and it was also nice because every time I had some bleeding or stuff in my early pregnancy, everyone knew they'd come in, they'd help me out. They'd get me out. They'd send, go, get me to go to OB, you know, I had so much support. Now I'm kind of jumping back, but I had a coworker who had a similar experience as well, who I had no idea, um, but she reached out to me um, while I was in that waiting period, waiting before I could actually be induced with Bryn. And she reached out and asked if she could come over. And I had been letting people come over and give hugs or drop off food or whatever. She told me her story. And that was another person. So it was Amy and uh, my one coworker who were able to tell me their stories. We had, me and her, she ended up having a D&E that was right for her, but we were able to talk about what this, you know, just the process and the grief. And uh, she actually had gone through it um, when she was in her first semester of anesthesia school. You know, I created a, like my soul sister that we were already friends, but it was just a different type of connection and one more person to talk to about what was going on. That was kind of the other thing in the aftermath is going back to work. What does that look like? When do I go back to work? Do I go back to work full time? My decision was I went back two days a week, um, about four weeks, probably three weeks actually after I had Bryn, which my OB thought I wasn't waiting long enough. And I'm like, I need to, for my sanity, I need to get out of the house because also my mom had gone back home and I was just by myself and I'm like, I can't be here. But, um, I went back with the stipulation that I was not going to do be in the C-section room. I didn't want to do any like OB, DNEs, DNCs type stuff, which worked great. Um, they were, I went from two days a week to three days a week to five days a week. And I did that over a few week period. And it was, for me, it was right. I would recommend it to other people if they're not sure what's right, because it allowed me to slowly get back into things and just figure out where I was at and kind of just like allow myself to, I don't know, just get back into normal life. Because for the last five weeks, six weeks, by that point, I was at home and grieving. That was all I was doing. And then I let them know, they kind of approached me, I kind of approached them about when I was ready to go back into C-sections. I kind of said, I think I might be ready. Like, if you want me to go in that room, will you just please ask me? And so they did ask me one day and I said, yes, I'll do it. And um, surprisingly, it wasn't as bad as I it didn't bother me. And that's probably something that's, it's going to be completely individual for people. The other thing that I did that I was really scared was going to bother me is I had a coworker who I'm very good friends with, who we were pregnant at the same time. She was several months ahead of me. But while I was out with, after losing Bryn, she had her baby. I didn't go see them right away, but a couple weeks later I went and saw them and I was okay with it. And in some ways I think it helped like seeing this is how it's supposed to be in this. And, you know, she was very concerned. She's like, I don't want you coming if you're not ready. And I'm like, you know, this is beautiful and this is how it's supposed to be. And yes, I'm jealous, like, but weirdly, but I think it would have bothered me more if her little baby was a girl. Um, I think it would have reminded me more of Bryn, but her little baby was a boy. I don't know. It added a little bit of separation. Um, Yeah. And it's been fun to watch her little boy grow up now. But, you know, it is always a reminder that Bryn would probably be right around there, too, just a couple months behind. 
the other thing that happened um, that people do talk about and sometimes don't, you're, it's a mystery, is about your milk coming in. My milk came in within a few days after having Bryn, um, and they recommended, I mean, of course, if you were up to doing it, you could always donate your breast milk. Um, I was not up to doing that, and um, they just recommended wearing the tightest compression bra you possibly could and not expressing and um, doing cold packs or cold cabbage leaves. Um, I got terrible mastitis. Um, and I would, anytime I would take my bra off, I would be pouring milk even with that. So I'm like, I'm not expressing. I'm like, I would think that the fact that it was pouring out, like I would have all this let down that I would not get mastitis, but I got really bad mastitis about probably like five days after six days after having her, I was starting to get really bad back pains and just feeling like really feverish and chills. And my boobs were just like cement bricks, um, which I was fine with the boobs, but it was the back pain and the chills. And I was like, I really think something's wrong. Um, so I went in and saw my normal OB and he said it was like the beginnings of mastitis. Um, and I got on some antibiotics and that really helped. I was shocked. It took me almost three months to dry up. And I kept thinking something has to be wrong. Something has to be wrong. How could I possibly, I've never once expressed, how could I possibly still be having milk three months later? It took so long. You know, I would read online that it should take a couple weeks or whatever. Yeah, that for some people, but not, not for me. Um, so if you're going through this process, it can take a very long time. I know some people recommended doing like Sudafed, just decided not to. I don't like the way I feel on it. I'd rather just keep some pads in my bra and call it a day. And I just kept up with the compression bras, the little lactation pads, and it was fine. Um, I didn't have any issues with infections after that one dose of antibiotics. In terms of you going back to work, I mean, Alec had already gone back to work pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. I think it's good to point out that everybody's re-entry into the workplace is going to be different. And mm-hmm. this is just a gentle reminder that grieving is so exhausting. Yes. You know, doing a couple days back at work and trying to, you know, just be able to be focused. That takes a lot yeah. of energy when you're caring for patients and then having a few days off to kind of regroup and yeah. nap. You can take a nap. If you need to go for a long walk outside, you can go outside. Yeah. It gives you that freedom to kind of gradually move back yeah. into workplace. Yeah. Um, I think it was excellent. I, I don't have any regrets about how I went back into the workplace. Yeah. It actually made me question, do I really ever want to be full-time again? <laughs> but eventually I was, you know, eventually money tells you, okay, so I better go back. <laughs> yeah. The, the bills are still coming in at the end of yeah. the month. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Reality. Yeah, reality. Exactly. I think when you are in that grief mode, you feel like the world, your world has stopped, but then you realize that everybody is still going. And at Mm -hmm. some point you have to kind of get back into that lane of moving forward. And it's just kind of, it's tough. It is. Yeah. It's very tough. As far as like another thing I want to talk about is I didn't seek out any counseling afterwards. Um, I thought... I, I mean, I talk very openly about this. Like, this is not the first time I've had talked about this. It's the first time I've talked on a platform like this. But anyone who wants to hear about my story with Bryn will hear this whole story. Because for me, this has been my therapy, um, talking about it. And it's amazing how many people have had similar experiences. It's No one talks about it, though. And all of a sudden, if you're willing to talk about it, 
oh, you know, this person had this, or someone will say my best friend had that. And it actually gave me more people to talk to as well um, with similar experiences. And no one's experience is going to be exactly yours, <laughs> but they're going to be similar. <laughs> um, but no I think one, it empowers yeah. you to allow your journey to be yours. Exactly. Because the one universal truth about grieving is it's unique. So exactly. just own your, your path. Mm-hmm. And, and tune out what everybody else is. It's nice to hear what other people's experiences are to, if you are like, oh, how do I re-enter the workplace or whatever? Yeah. It's nice to get ideas. But yeah. at the end of the day, this is your journey and exactly. you, you can take it however it feels best for you. Yeah. So I didn't like seek out um, talking to a grief counselor or anything. And I, I wish I would have. I think it would have been beneficial to talk to someone who wasn't there just to only listen to me, you know, I needed some, probably needed some advice. Um, and I, my husband was trying to convince, you know, encourage me to do that. And, um, I just am like, you know, I'm like, I feel like I'm, I'm like, I'm grieving, but I'm like, grieving's normal, you know, and it is grieving's normal, but I think it would have been beneficial to talk to someone sooner. I didn't end up reaching out to anyone till November. Um, and I had her in June. So it took me quite a while to actually start talking to someone. And I recently just decided to, I've now stopped talking to them as of just a few weeks ago, just because I felt like I'm in a really good place right now, you know, but I know that if, I'm ever getting back in a place where I want to talk to someone again, I have that option and that it is helpful. Do you want to talk about why you went to therapy in November? Sure. Um, So my husband came to me in November and said he wanted a divorce. And um, that was the final straw. (laughs) I was grieving for Bryn and that had been everything. I mean, I was getting up every day, going to work, showering, taking care of everything. But my whole focus at this point now, three ish years from the time we started trying to have a baby, the day he came to me was having a baby. (laughs) Um, And I think that really had just taken its toll on our relationship along with other things. I mean, every relationship has its problems. My husband came to me in November and said he wanted a divorce. And at that point I was like, now I had hit my breaking point. I was like, I could get through losing Bryn. I, I mean, I wasn't getting through that well, like, but I was like, I can't get through losing Bryn, losing my best friend and losing my husband. Like I was just like, I was at a complete loss. That was my absolute lowest point I've ever been in my life. That is when I reached out and started talking to a counselor. And so I was talking about both the loss of my marriage as well as the loss of Bryn, which became much more just about the loss of Bryn um, as things started kind of settling down with my separation from my husband. And and that's actually what caused me to move up from to Minnesota instead of North Carolina. This is where I'm from, the land of the snow and the cold. <laughs> I'm doing really good. And um, I would hope that no one has to lose their marriage over something like this, but it isn't the loss of Bryn that lost my marriage. It was a lot of things, but um, I think what part of it was allowing infertility to become the center of our relationship. And he would frequently tell me that all you can talk about is having a baby. And it is, it's all I could think about. And I think that in, if I had talked to someone, maybe I could have had some other interests in my life other than just being a mom. But I mean, it's, I don't know. It's so hard to say. Um, it's easy to look back at, you know. Hindsight is always twenty twenty. 
Mm-hmm, exactly. Yeah. And one thing I have done actually, since we separated, I moved up to Minnesota and I froze my eggs. And um, that's been like, honestly, probably the best thing I've ever done for myself, because now I don't feel this like timeline of I need to become a mom right now, or I'm going to get too old or, you know, that, that, I mean, we all know this like maternal clock we have. Um, so I froze my eggs. It wasn't the cheapest thing ever, but it was totally worth for me. It was an easy experience. I had no difficulties with all with it at all. I mean, other than that, you have to go for a lot of appointments. So you probably almost need a month off work if you're planning on doing that. It was kind of liberating in that I'm like, okay, I can kind of just do me for right now, allow myself to grieve, um, allow myself to just, I don't know, date and focus on my new job. And trust me, I still want to be a mom. If you could tell me I was pregnant right now, I'd be the happiest person in the world. But it's given me that like a little bit of freedom, freeing my mind of that constant obsession. When you're struggle with infertility that long. It's an obsession. I think anyone who has struggled with it can agree to that. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Now that you have moved and you're in Minnesota and whatnot, and you have geographic space Mm -hmm. as well as, you know, change of scenery, so to speak, looking back at this experience, are there a couple key things that you would say to somebody who is on a similar journey? Yeah, I would say allow yourself to grieve, like reach out for help. There's, I mean, whether it's Amy or whether it's someone in this group, find someone who really understands and can just connect with you because I think that was the biggest thing is just having someone who I could voice my concerns about or even to come to a place where there isn't judgment um, in whatever decision you're choosing to make. Because there's a lot of people who are going to judge your decision and don't let that get to you. You are making the best decision for you, your family, and your baby. If you're carrying the baby to term, whether you lost the baby by no decision, no choice of your own, or you're making the decision, like you are doing your absolute best and having someone that you can talk to about that who is open to you and without judgment, I think that's probably the biggest thing. Yeah, I, I guess those would probably be my biggest takeaways from this experience and finding ways to remember your baby too. I have my necklace I wear every single day. This is my Bryn necklace. I think I have three of these because three different people gave me this necklace as a gift. Every day I want to wear this and I'm sad when I'm not wearing it, which I'm very much considering just getting a tattoo, which is going to be a butterfly because that's my Bryn symbol that has become. So I don't feel so attached to this necklace. Like if I forget this necklace, I'm kind of like, oh, I'm going to have an off day. I'm not wearing my Bryn necklace. So I think I'm going to do a tattoo, but I have like things I want to do. I am in the process of purchasing a house, close next Monday. Uh, my plan is like, I'm going to make a garden and I'm going to put plants in there that bring in butterflies because as soon as I lost Bryn, all of a sudden there were butterflies everywhere. And so that to me is my Bryn symbol. So I want to, you know, have a butterfly garden in honor of her, you know, her special urn and 
we did, uh, I think Amy, me and you talked about this was I was kind of upset this Christmas because I had so much going on. I was in the process of separating from my husband. I hadn't moved yet. I was trying to sell the house. I was really upset because I hadn't come up with a plan for what to do for Christmas in honor of her. And that was really like distressing for me. And we ended up just doing something really simple. We lit a candle and we, me and my mom both read a home or a note we had written for her. And I just, I plan on doing that every year now. Um, it wasn't as extravagant as what I in my mind wanted to do, but it was perfect and beautiful. I think just doing things like that, it's really nice. And, um, as time goes on, it's not as hard. You miss them just as much, but it's not as daily painful, which it's like in the moment, I'm like, how could it possibly not always be as painful? But I think there was like a perfect little thing I saw that I posted on Facebook about, you know, it's like a ball in a glass mason jar. And it's not that your grief shrinks over time. It's that the mason jar around the grief ball grows over time. And you just have more capacity to live your life around your grief. Well, you have been incredibly open and honest about your journey. And I think that a lot of people will appreciate that and connect with your journey because they too are going through something similar. Mm -hmm. And you had mentioned, you know, when we start talking about these difficult things in life, it just opens up other people and gives them permission to say, guess what? I've been through it too. So I hope that the more conversations we have on this podcast and we normalize these difficult conversations, the easier it is as healthcare providers to say, hey, I don't have to have this perfect professional mask on all the time. I'm human too. Yes. And I can grieve and I can cry and I can say, I need to take some time for me and figure this stuff out. And you've articulated that so beautifully. And I hope that has empowered others to figure out what they need on a very difficult path. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is not an easy path. And this is a path that no one should have to be on. Yet we, all of us here have found ourselves on it. We will get through this. Yes. One day at a time. And sometimes it's one moment at a time. Exactly. Yeah. One second at a time and whatever it is that day, you know? Yes. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you again for sharing your story with us. Is there any place we can find you on social media or anywhere if people want to connect your story with where you're at now? Yep. Um, Probably Facebook is probably the easiest or Facebook messenger. If you want to reach out to me, it's Chelsea Ann Herzig. And I'm a member of the CRNA or the healthcare, both of them, the grief support group. So if, you know, easiest to probably just look through the members and find me on there. Yes. And I'll just, I'll put something in the show notes to link your name. And then if somebody feels like talking with you or connecting with you in some way is helpful, then it'll be easy for them to find you. Exactly. I'm more than willing to have a phone conversation too. So if anyone, you know, feels like they want to reach out or ask questions or feel like their experience is similar, you know, feel free. Thank you so much. Yes. You're very welcome. Thank you, Amy. You're welcome. I want to pause to remember Bryn. Your precious life is impacting many people listening to this podcast. May you always know how special and loved you are. I hope Chelsea's example empowers anyone who is navigating the medical system or grieving the loss of their baby to self-advocate as she did. Also, if you are a female grieving healthcare provider and feeling lost, the Pause to Remember community has options to support you. You can find links to the Facebook groups, monthly virtual support group, 
or my calendar if you want to speak directly to me, as I did with Chelsea. Please help grieving healthcare providers find the Pause to Remember community by rating and reviewing this podcast, sharing on your social media, or forwarding the information noted below to someone in need. Thanks for being here. I look forward to sharing more with you soon. Thank you.